Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Welcome to Emory Innovators, which showcases conversations with Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship or have taken innovative approaches to design their careers and disrupting their industries. This episode is a special edition and will sound a bit different from our regular format. The first thing you will notice that is different is me. I'm Ben Garrett, Innovation Programming and Operations Manager here at The Hatchery, and I will be your host for today. Today's episode will focus on innovative research that an Emory professor is doing and how you can apply those insights to your work. We want to take the brilliant, cutting-edge insights being developed here at Emory and deliver them directly to you. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Andrea Dittman. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm an assistant professor of organization and management here at Emory University's Guizueta Business School. Uh, and before Guizueta, I was at Kellogg, the Kellogg School of Management, getting my PhD in management and organizations. So I spent a long time in Chicago. And then before that, I was an undergrad at St. Olaf College, a small liberal arts college uh, in Minnesota, where I study psychology and statistics. Um, and so in my role as a professor, I not only teach classes in organization and management in the BBA program, but I also do research. So right now I'm kind of in the middle of my research semester. Um, and my research primarily focuses on diversity and inequality in organizations, and particularly on how employees' social class backgrounds um, continue to kind of affect their experiences and outcomes at work long after they themselves have graduated from college. So that kind of overlap between the experience that students are having in college and the way that their life experiences prior to college can then sort of flow into their first roles is really, really interesting and I think kind of unique. So I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit about how did you arrive at this area of focus for your research? Probably came from my own firsthand experiences working in different types of jobs. There was this one summer, the summer after my sophomore year of college, where I was really hustling that summer and I was working full-time as a waitress, so a very blue collar type position. And then I was also, you know, trying to get ready for graduate school. And so I was working as a research assistant. Um, and so I think I had that sort of clash of social class, like, you know, a blue a very blue collar job, waitressing, a very white collar job. And um, I was like doing data entry and coding videos and like research documents and things. Um, and, you know, I, objectively I was getting paid more and it was like much more something I could put on my resume this observational research assistant position that I had, but the waitressing job was way harder um, and I was getting paid less, you know, for some reason our society seems to, you know, reward um, and view as more successful, um, you know, this research type position. Uh, but really like the experience that I had is that they just really required different types of skills and they were totally, you know, not, one was not necessarily better than the other. It's just a different kind of skill. That's a long winded story to how I kind of got interested in social class in the first place. And then when I started my PhD at Kellogg, uh, my advisor, Nicole Stevens, she's done a lot of pioneering work on first-generation college students. So kind of this cultural mismatch. So how the norms of our, our classic universities tend to be very individualistic um, and really focused on kind of expressing yourself and paving your own path. Uh, whereas first-generation college students come from working-class contexts and they're much more interdependent. They understand themselves in a much more relational way. 
Um, and so they kind of encounter this, this cultural mismatch. And that is kind of what one thing that makes it more difficult for them um, to kind of navigate through college. But the good news is if you just sort of make frame college as interdependent, that it could actually eliminate these social class gaps. So I was really fascinated by that work, but you know, myself being in a management PhD, I was like, well, what, what about, what happens to these people once they graduate from college and go to work? And she's like, I don't think we know. Like, I don't think anyone's actually researched that yet. So I was like, sounds like a dissertation. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> Andrea's research is all about first-generation college students' post-college careers. What happens when they enter white-collar workplaces? What strengths are they bringing to the table? What kinds of frictions do they experience? One of the features of Andrea's research that makes her work so unique and powerful is that she is reframing questions around the experience of first-generation college students in the workforce from a deficit approach to a strength-based approach. I think when you read, you know, when you look at the popular press, when you read a lot of the literature that exists on social class um, in psychology and developmental psychology, sociology, a lot of it just sort of assumes this like deficit approach. It sort of assumes that, gosh, there's like these gaps between working class people and middle class people. Like, what can we do to close that gap? Um, and it sort of just assumes that, you know, the middle class people are doing things the right way. You know, the, the, they are the standard and the working class people are falling short of that somehow. Um, and so that just, again, probably partially due to like the experiences of waitressing and being like, this is not like lesser, it's just different. Um, that realization was sort of like, well, why would we only be trying to close the gap? Why wouldn't we be trying to uncover situations where potentially we could even reverse the gap? Like it's something much more about the situation than it is about the people. Um, and the structure of the situation. So I kind of really took um, some of the, the findings that Nicole had had of like closing these social class gaps. And I was like, well, what if we actually like had people working on achievement tasks differently? So, you know, it, we assess people as individuals primarily in the United States, right? We have individual SAT to get into college, individual GRE to get into grad school, you know, your GPA is very individual. Um, but when we get out into the workplace, we're oftentimes working in teams. It's a much more, you know, collaborations on the rise, not going away anytime soon. So it's a totally different skill set, um, but we're not evaluating people based on how well they are at working in teams. Um, but so yeah, based on all this research and the interdependence that working class people have, I just was curious, you know, like what if we just had people do the exact same task, like a problem solving task, and we either had them working as individuals or working together in a team. Um, and what we found, not in every case, but in some cases, um, the working class groups actually can outperform the middle class groups. So we see the typical social class achievement gap where middle class people are doing better um, when they're working by themselves, but they, they're they not as skilled at working in groups, in group settings as their working class counterparts. So I think that was really um, a surprising, I mean, I was really excited to, to find that, but I think kind of a surprising thing because so much of the narrative is about like deficits and gaps. And it's like, well, no, it's actually probably just something about the situation. Like the skills are there. It's just, we're not, you know, structuring our measures of achievement to be aligned with um, the way that working class people will be best able to perform up to their potential. So I think there's a lot of different findings like that, but I think it's almost like a meta science perspective of like taking a step back and thinking like, oh, you know, you bring your largely middle class researchers or, you know, people with PhDs, you're bringing a very like middle upper class sort of mindset to your research. And um, maybe you're sort of taking for granted that like, the way that you do things or the way that you succeeded is like the right way to succeed. And maybe there's like just a totally different standard that we should be using. Reframing the experience of first-generation college students in the workforce 
away from deficits and towards strengths is a deeply meaningful shift. Rather than thinking about how to make first-generation college students like everyone else, Andrea is interested in the incredible power that their unique experience brings to the table and how organizations can unlock that power for the benefit of the employee and also for the organization. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the strengths that first-generation college students are bringing to their first jobs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so a lot of where I did um, some of this work is within my dissertation. Um, as I had sort of mentioned earlier, you know, there wasn't a lot of work in organizational behavior on social costs at all. So when we don't have a lot of research existing on a topic, it's a good way to start out by doing like interviews, doing a more qualitative approach. So that was a new methodology for me, but I'm super glad that I did it because it's given me so many amazing quotes and it gives you such rich detail and it's got, given me a ton of other research ideas. So it was a really long process to try to find these first generation. Um, they were MBA students actually. So not only had they graduated from college first and the family got in a white collar job, they'd actually managed to get into a top 20 MBA program. So really a, a very impressive group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're on the Emory Innovators podcast here. And I think that I've been thinking about a lot of the strengths that I just sort of naturally emerge in these interviews. And I feel like a lot of the skills that working class people bring um, are actually really super relevant and would actually be be- things that would be beneficial for, you know, entrepreneurs or people interested in startups. Um, so I think three of the three or four of the really big ones um, are resilience. Um, just really having this sense of grit and perseverance in the face of adversity, uh, having a really strong work ethic, because again, they're very, they feel like they've come so far, their parents have done so much um, to get them to the point that they're at. So they, they really have this sort of desire to um, be upwardly mobile and that really motivates them to work extremely hard. Um, also like this idea of like sort of making lemons, a lemonade out of lemons, uh, making the best of things, which I think has gotta be super relevant for, for entrepreneurship. Um, and then finally, this yes and mentality. So kind of building on each other's ideas, which I think could be really great for, for brainstorming or ideating or things like that. So I can share a couple quotes from these interviews. So I did, I, as I mentioned, these interviews with MBA students from working class backgrounds. Um, and perhaps like one of the most relevant ones as I was thinking about this podcast is just this idea of making the best of things. And so one of my interviewees, um, we use pseudonyms, this is not her real name, but her name uh, for the purposes of the interview with Jasmine, um, and she was an interviewee of mine from a working class background, and she talked about um, how she really felt like her ability to make the best of things was something that really set her apart in the workplace compared to, you know, most of the rest of the workforce, which was people coming from middle and upper class backgrounds. She said, um, being someone who hasn't had a lot of resources and just having to make do with a lot of things, you literally learn how to transform whatever you have to make it work, and it makes you very resourceful. In a way that when you come to see a dead end, I would actually have the ability to find and see possibilities and leverage them and figure out a way even to create them. And I think that was something that if you haven't practiced that skill set before, you wouldn't be able to do. So again, directly sort of tying, experiencing like this relatively low resource environment growing up and kind of having to figure things out um, with limited resources, she actually felt like, you know, going into this white collar job, she was given no budget at all to get a project done. She's like, no problem. I can do it. I'm used to that. Like not an issue. Whereas like she felt like her counterparts who are used to kind of having more resources at their disposal struggle a little bit with that. So I definitely feel like, you know, skills like that are, are super relevant, not only to most white collar jobs, I would imagine, particularly in the, the landscape of like entrepreneurship as well. 
It should be apparent by now that first-generation college students are offering the organizations they work for incredible value. They come in the door with traits like creativity and resilience. In fact, many of the buzzwords we see on job postings, things like self-starter and problem-solver, are second nature to these workers. At the same time, the application process may not be designed to surface these traits because it is geared towards work experience, and the places where first-generation college students gathered these experiences may not have been in jobs or internships. This is another feature of Andrea's approach that makes it unique. Because she is looking not through a deficit lens, she is less interested in programs that these students are the recipients of, though those can be important, and more interested in how organizations can improve themselves to create optimal experiences for their employees and therefore receive all these employees have to offer. So, what can organizations do to unlock everything first-generation employees have to offer? So I definitely think it would be great if uh, interviewers could ask more inclusive questions. So I think as you were saying, Ben, um, you know, people are often specifically having people thinking about prior work experiences in a sort of a a narrow sense. Um, And I think we're not picking up on some of these life experiences that people may have had and, and they could be very relevant to work experiences, but just not in a work setting yet. So I think asking more inclusive questions, you know, things that you're you think would be skills, so more more so like selecting on things that you think would be beneficial skills, but then asking it in a more inclusive way. You know, I think oftentimes college students think they have to talk about their internships or things, um, whereas we know that, you know, first-generation college students more often have to work, you know, like an actual part-time job, but still definitely giving them transferable skills, but it's not something, you know, high status perhaps. Um, so I think being a little bit more inclusive about what counts as a legitimate experience to discuss in an interview, I think that would be one great way um, to make those more inclusive. But then on the the first generation college student side, I think there's definitely ways um, that you can frame uh, your experiences to sort of come off really well in an interview. Um, so, you know, I think we've been talking a little bit about sort of this deficit focus. Um, but another really appealing thing that applies really well to most first generation individuals is this story of upward mobility and this this kind of growth mindset, if you will. So a lot of people are very interested in this growth mindset. And so I think um, framing your experiences and like, look how far I've come, look how much I've overcome to get to this point. You know, I'm, I have a lot more diverse experiences and a unique perspective because of that. I think there's a lot of ways that you can frame it, not in, a, you know, I've managed to do this despite obstacles. It's like, look at how the obstacles I've overcome, look at all the adversity I've experienced. And, you know, I'm only growing and continuing on this trajectory from here. So I think there's definitely things that I think companies should be doing to be asking more inclusive questions. But I also think in the meantime, um, while we kind of, you know, it's, it's a little slower to change things on the corporate side, but in the meantime, um, first gens can definitely be representing themselves and, and feel confident sort of uh, taking ownership over those experiences um, because they are things that would be transferable into these jobs. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful kind of advice for, for both sides of that equation. And yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting and helpful about your research is that you, you are focused on the, the institutions, um, because there, there are ways to approach this where it'd be on the job training for first generation college students or different kinds of programs or things to help them to quote unquote, uh, improve. And I think your, your point is 
that's not a holistic way to look at it. It may be kind of a, in some cases, a backwards way of looking at it. And so I'd, I'd be really curious to hear a little bit more about what your research has taught you about the best ways that companies, organizations, institutions can structure teams and workflows to maximize the effectiveness of these first generation students' work. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is, you know, I love studying social class because I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. I also love studying teams because they're so interesting. I mean, it's just, you know, if you study one sort of individual in isolation, you're just sort of thinking about like, what does this person think or how do they respond to this stimulus or things like that. But when you get people in a room interacting, it's like anything can happen. It's so crazy. Um, So I think it is really important to actually um, structure your teams in a really intentional way. And so I think it's a really important um, point to make about my research. You know, I, I never want people to sort of leave a conversation with me and think, oh, let's just put people in teams and then we'll close the social class gap. Like that, that's, it's as simple as one, two, three. It's, it's not like that at all. And actually, I mean, it was a, a process of discovery for me doing the research. Um, it's not, you can't just put people in teams. In fact, there are certain situations where putting people in teams can actually backfire. Um, so what we know and what I was mentioning earlier is that, you know, first generation individuals tend to be more interdependent. They sort of are guided by these relational norms. They really have close relationships. Um, they're really loyal to others and things like that. Um, the classic sort of definition of teamwork from a middle class perspective is much more like let's get into a group and like divvy up all the work and then work by ourselves, which is, you know, this sort of divide and conquer approach to teamwork. And that's not at all a match for, for first generation students. They really need to be actually working on like an actually interdependent project, like something that actually requires interaction and sort of building on each other's ideas and integrating different perspectives and truly coming to sort of a joint solution. Those are the um, the types of teamwork situations where we actually really see um, the skills of working class people shining through because they're, again, they're sort of more naturally interdependent. It turns out that a lot of the things that are classified as interdependent behaviors are also things in the groups and teams literature that correspond to sort of effective group processes. So it really needs to be a situation that's interdependent. And so I'm not saying put people in teams and create an interdependent situation, like on the specific types of tasks where you really do need more than one individual. You want to make sure it's actually um, the processes the group is using are actually interdependent. Another way that you can get at this is um, making sure that your teams are a little bit more social class diverse. So some of the other um, work that I've done on the social class and teamwork, we looked at the social class composition of the group. So we counted how many, um, there, these were student groups working across the semester, about six to eight students, and we counted how many first generation students were in each group. And we actually only saw a benefit in terms of, um, you know, social class composition of having more working class individuals when there was at least two first generation individuals in a group. If a person was a sort of a solo first generation individual, that was a little bit of an isolating experience, it seemed like. And we actually didn't see sort of any benefit for group performance, again, probably because teams, you know, require multiple people to be engaging these effective group processes to actually make things go well. So if you only have one person and they're the odd one out and everyone else is trying to divide and conquer, that's also not going to be a good experience. So I think, you know, on the one hand, hiring a more social class diverse workforce, that'll help to sort of enable that you're making sure you have these diverse perspectives in your teams. And then also making sure that you're structuring the teamwork intentionally to kind of map on to the type of task that you're working on it, really making sure that those processes are, you know, set up in like a team contract 
react or something, how, how we're actually going to run um, meetings and things like that. That's really helpful. And I think the providing both sort of the staging conditions of a diverse working group of employees is super important. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about or maybe give an example of like a common sort of like workplace task that is like truly interdependent. Like what's something that's happening at a workplace that we would be better off if we were approaching it in a genuinely like interdependent fashion? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this also ties back to innovation really well because I think oftentimes, um, so like this is like what I teach in my class. I teach about like when should we use teams and like what kind of teams should we use? Um, and so when it's like a totally novel task and it's, or, you know, a novel project or a novel product or something and, and no one's ever, you know, been in that space before that you really need, you know, a diversity of thought and opinion, um, to actually get, you know, the best outcome uh, possible. Um, so I think that's actually a time that it's really great to assemble a team and then assemble a really interdependent team. If it's something where it's got a lot of parts, but there's nothing that needs to be done, you know, at simultaneously, right? Like it's like sort of more like I'll do my piece, then I'll send it to you and you'll add your piece and then I'll send it to the next person. Like that's not a situation where you need to have an interdependent team. But I think, um, you know, for like brainstorming or coming up with, you know, innovative solutions and things like that, um, we really want to have each person sort of think individually first then come together in a group setting um, and consider all those ideas. And I think if you have everyone sort of thinking individually first and then you bring together this group and you've got some first generation individuals in the group, what we what I know from my prior research and the research of others is that that's when those effective group processes are going to come out and we're going to be sort of hearing from more perspectives. We're going to be hearing, um, you know, the thoughts and opinions of, you know, minority group members more often because, um, of that yes and mentality that I mentioned. So in this lab study that we did, we had people working on this problem solving task and, and we video recorded the interactions of the groups. And we saw that the working class groups were engaging in a much more active and balanced conversation. They were ha- taking a lot more turns in conversation and kind of a, that improv mentality. You can like actually see them in the transcripts of the conversations actually being like, yes, I agree with you. And and like actually building on each other's ideas more. And, and then that actually translated them in, into them performing better on that task. So I think it's situations like that where you really need there to be like an actual discussion and an interdependent process to kind of come up with a solution. Um, not situations where you're just sort of Send, you know, send forwarding it on to the next person to, for them to add their piece. That's not a situation where interdependence is going to be that beneficial. That's really, really helpful. I also think it's kind of hilarious and ironic that there's a growing trend of paying people a not inconsiderable amount of money to come in and teach your employees like improv techniques. And it it yeah. sounds like that uh, many companies actually already have in-house experts on that kind of thinking. Uh, right. They're maybe just not leveraging that in-house expertise. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Andrea has highlighted some key factors when thinking about structuring teamwork. First, diverse teams create better outcomes. Second, this is doubly true when you need innovative solutions. First-generation college students in your workforce bring this diversity of perspective to most workplaces, and they naturally operate in an interdependent yes-and fashion. At the same time, not all work is best done as a team. 
When people need to implement individual tasks, Andrea recommends ensuring clarity of purpose and giving them autonomy in doing the task. What are some of the other things that organizations can do about their environment that would help first-generation employees be their most successful? Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, some work that I've been doing that's still in the review process, so not published yet, um, but it's it's part of my dissertation as well. And I was really thinking about, okay, so we have these really interesting findings where we can see um, certain instances where people are working in teams and we actually have the first-generation individuals performing better or definitely at least the gap being closed. So those were kind of context-free. I mean, that was like a lab study, a college class. We hadn't really done it in organizations yet. And so I wanted to know, you know, what happens when we bring these findings to actual workplaces. Um, And so it turns out, you know, unsurprising, collaborations on the rise. Most modern organizations are requiring people to work in teams at least some percentage of the time. Um, uh, I did a nationally representative survey and it seemed like about 40% of the time people reported that they're actually working together in teams at work in a regular work week. So, you know, pretty frequent um, for most people. But it turns out that, you know, this has been a relatively recent shift. Um, And so the values and, you know, like what is sort of considered the behaviors that you have to require, uh, you have to engage in to be like a quote unquote good employee hasn't really kept pace with the requirement of teamwork. Um, and so what we see is that if first generation employees are at an organization where they're actually engaging in teamwork pretty frequently, but it's not actually affirmed as an important part of what it means to be a good employee, that this actually can backfire. So this actually sends a signal to these first generation employees that, yeah, you have to, you have to work together in teams, but it's not like a valued part of, you know, ascending the corporate hierarchy here. You know, we're going to much more assess you based on your individual merit. That is actually going to be a really bad experience for first gens. So I think the the take home message for organizations here is you know it's not enough to just require putting people into teams you need to make sure that your values and your mission statement actually backs that up and and sends the signal that yes you know it is going to be an important part you are going to be evaluated on being an effective teammate um, they for first generation individuals who tend to be sort of underrepresented in these white collar jobs they're more on edge already they're sort of more seeking um, signals that they are or are not included in the environment and so making sure that there's this really consistent message of like, you're going to work together in a team and we actually care um, about you being an effective teammate. We're going to evaluate you based on that as well. That is the kind of the secret sauce that actually makes teamwork uh, work well for first-generation employees in actual organizations. That's that's really, really helpful. And it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense that, yeah, asking people to do a thing that you don't actually reward them for doing is not going to be an incredibly yeah. productive way of doing business. Right. I'd be curious. I mean, the, the 40% stat that you shared, yeah, it, it, that's a big number. It, it makes a lot of sense. I'm also curious about if you have had a chance to, to do research on or read research about, or think about how our like more remote way of working over the past two or three years plays into this collaboration, team building, kind of like workflow restructuring kind of work. Do you, do you have a sense if, if things are uh, better or worse or the same for first generation uh, workers in a more remote working environment? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I know I haven't done any research specifically on that and I don't know of any. So that'd be a great, you know, it's a great next project for me to, to get going on. I, I have been collecting data during the pandemic from a different social class individuals, but I haven't actually looked at the structure of their work, but that seems like an obvious next step. Um, the only thing that I can sort of speak to that about is um, I have been doing research in the context of the pandemic. So I've been doing some online uh, interaction experiments. Uh, I mean, so in the original sort of social class and teamwork um, work that I was doing, I mean, I did run an online study. We saw this sort of same benefit. So they were just sort of chatting um, uh, and they didn't have like, you know, it wasn't video based. It was just sort of like an instant message back and forth um, doing the problem solving task. We sort of saw the same pattern where working class people perform better in groups than when they were as individuals. And then, yeah, just recently in the last like year during the pandemic, I did run another online interaction study um, more in the context of the work that I was just talking about, you know, requiring teamwork and also making sure that it was valued. And I sort of saw the same thing. And again, that was sort of the same setup where it was just sort of a chat back and forth. So I think, um, again, there's ways to structure it, right? I mean, so I obviously am always really trying to be attentive to the way that I'm structuring my tasks to make sure that they actually, I'm picking the right tasks so they're actually required to work together on the task. They can't divide and conquer and things like that. Um, but I think the synchronous nature, uh, you know, even if it is just a chat, you know, over, um, online context, I think it can still have the same benefits, but obviously I think that it's really easy to imagine, um, that, that the bra- the breakdown could be a lot quicker, right? I mean, we have a lot of asynchronous modes of communication and I think that's kind of starting to get more into the divide and conquer style. Like I think if you're getting, you know, a Zoom call or you're getting like a chat, you know, like a Slack, Slack back and forth, like in real time, I think you can still get some of those uh, more interdependent experiences. But I think once we sort of start veering away from synchronous and into asynchronous, that's where I would suspect that some of this disadvantage might start creeping back in. Even if it's technically teamwork, um, it starts to sort of feel like you're just working as an individual by yourself. Mm-hmm. No, that's really, that's really interesting. I, it's in some ways a little encouraging. I think, I think I was asking the question a little bit afraid of the answer, um, <laughs> but I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that, yeah, there are, it's helpful just to think about what kinds of work are we asking people to do in what kinds of remote mediums? Because to your point, yeah, there, there's yeah. video, there's chat, there's email, like, and sort of thinking about what kind of task am I asking this team to do? And then what is the best digital tool for accomplishing that task, I feel like is a really interesting question universally. And and I think particularly in this context, uh, thinking through who is on my team and what kinds of work am I asking them to do and how does that affect uh, the medium that we're doing it in, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One thing, Andrea, that's sticking out to me actually as we're talking, so feel free to, to say this is not something you want to dive Uh into like based on research, but I, I'm noticing that I think a lot of this conversation, I feel like we're talking about, um, first generation, uh, employees as direct reports. I'm, I'm curious if your research has looked at like first gen as managers or leaders and, if, if different kinds of traits like show up or different strengths show up, or maybe it's the same strengths, but the way they're being deployed um, kinds of shifts when, when the frame is less about um, them as a direct report and more about them as a manager leader. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we're definitely, yeah, we've been sort of talking about like transition to work, but I think obviously things across the the career are really interesting. It's something that I already have kind of in plan. So like I mentioned, I did those interviews with MBA students. Those are about five years ago. I'm already like planning on following up with these people. This is how long research takes. But then to sort of see, okay, now five (laughs) to seven years post MBA, much more likely to be in a leadership position. And then we can sort of compare the experiences that we saw them describing kind of, we, we asked them to really think about their transition to work from college. And then now thinking about like, you know, like much more of a leadership role. So I definitely am planning to do some work on that. But in the meantime, I can definitely speak to this because I think there is some really interesting work being done in this area um, by some, you know, fellow social class researchers. So uh, Peter Bellamy and Sean Martin, who are both at Darden, uh, they are doing some really, they individually um, are both doing some really interesting work on social class and leadership. Um, so one of my personal favorite papers of Sean Martin's, um, he actually looked in the military. So he looked at um, social socioeconomic background of the leaders and he actually had their reports. So these like, you know, leaders in the military and their direct reports um, assess like kind of how strong of a leader they were. And they actually saw really different strengths kind of coming out. They saw that um, the working class leaders or the, you know, the leaders who came from working class background were much more other oriented. They were less narcissistic and they were much more focused on, you know, transformative leadership, really um, focusing on bringing the best out in their team. So I think that's totally consistent with um, all the research that Nicole has done, the research that I've been doing. Um, So I think it's really, really fascinating um, extension because it really suggests, and what we know from other like research on leadership more generally is that like leadership tends to amplify your, your existing personality. So I think that's like a really nice proof of concept to show, you know, we look at when we're looking at working class people, we see that they're more other oriented, more relational, more interdependent. Um, and then we see in this context, putting them into a leadership position that's actually being amplified and they're actually being more other oriented. So I think that's a really encouraging first study. And I think there's more work to be done there. Um, and then I also mentioned Peter Bellamy. He's been doing sort of on the other side of things, um, another element that sort of is a roadblock for first generation individuals on the path to leadership is the way that we frame attaining power in modern organizations. So he finds that, you know, we typically, unsurprisingly, just like I was saying in the college context, you know, we frame getting power as something really agentic and you have to be really self-promotional and you have to play politics in order to rise through the ranks. And that is really grating and and it's not a natural feeling to want to pursue power for first-generation individuals because it kind of goes against their whole ethos. Um, But he finds that if you reframe power as, you know, a way to give back to others or a way to, you know, make sure that people with your background can do well. Like if you frame it in a much more interdependent way um, as like sort of a way to to benefit the group, then we can actually close the gap in first generation's individuals' interest in pursuing um, leadership positions. So I think all kind of consistent work suggesting that this interdependence really is permeating throughout um, the career trajectories of these first-gen individuals. Well, and one thing that's sticking out to me about that too is there's sort of that that cliche or common experience of working in a company and someone who was a really amazing individual contributor gets promoted into a leadership role and the leadership skills are just not there. It turns out they're ideally suited to be a really, really high-performing individual contributor. And 
in this trait of interdependence that you're talking about, I hear sort of the exact opposite thing. It's uh, if you give the the first generation employee the opportunity to be a leader, th- their sort of orientation is towards that kind of like multiplication, amplifying leadership way of being. Um, and so, yeah, it just strikes me again, kind of there's an irony here of this thing that we are actually very much looking for in our organizations. And we often bemoan we lack in the people that get promoted. Actually, the first generation employees are innately inclined for precisely the trait that we are hoping to find and promote and give leadership power to. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's the very reason that they may not sort of stand out in their early career is because they are much more humble and like other oriented. But it's the those are the exact qualities that I think we should be looking for because those are the, the kinds of things that we know um, make more effective leaders down the road. So yeah, it's a little bit of a catch twenty two of again, kind of going back to the this what we were talking about earlier, just the traits that we're assessing people on or, you know, the skills and abilities that we're assessing people on are not necessarily the skills and abilities that we would ideally be wanting to select for. Right. Um, yeah. The point Andrea has made here is crucial. Creating diverse teams, allowing those teams to work interdependently and creatively, and getting better outcomes is fantastic. At the same time, there is a common pitfall here that has to do with how organizations reward this work. Too often, performance is measured on a highly individual basis, where individual product heavily outweighs team contribution. If you aren't rewarding teamwork with recognition, compensation, and promotion, you're going to end up demoralizing your incredibly talented employees. And if you demoralize these employees, then the benefits of this work are going to dry up. Here again, by switching from thinking about how can we make these employees be like other employees to thinking about how can we as an organization ensure that our processes, procedures, and workflows are designed for everyone to bring their strengths to the table is a major unlock of potential value. Instead of demoralizing creative team players, you can reward, promote, and ultimately allow these kinds of workers to be influencing leaders within the organization. The value here is exponential. This is the power of true inclusion. Before we wrap up, let's learn a bit about some of Andrea's other research interests. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I'll start a little bit um, closer with like the social class stuff, just kind of some of the things that I'm working on in that space, um, because I do think that they kind of tie in nicely with some of the things we've already been talking about. So, you know, I'm working on a lot of different projects related to social class background and workplace transitions. Um, Some of the other work that I'm um, working on currently that we haven't really talked about is, you know, how elite preparation. So like whether or not, you know, individuals have completed elite internships or gone to an elite university for undergraduate, whether or not that can actually smooth the the workplace transition for these first generation individuals. The spoiler alert is that it doesn't seem like it does. It actually, if anything, seems to sensitize these individuals because they're more sort of aware of social classes and organizing force in these professional workplaces compared to people who sort of luck into a, a really high status job after, you know, maybe going to a state school. They're not quite as aware um, of social classes and organizing force. And it doesn't seem like there's really like a lot of meaningful differences. Like, you know, they still sort of 
people with and without elite preparation still kind of report experiencing the same or very similar difficulties to to a similar extent. So um, whatever we're teaching in these elite preparation experiences doesn't actually seem to be conferring um, the skills that we hope. So a lot of people say like, oh, let's just, you know, um, get more first gens into sort of like these elite programs. And it it actually seems like more of that reproduction is happening at home. It seems like um, parents are sort of passing down um, how to behave in like white collar workplaces and things like that. It's not really coming from that elite preparation. So that's that's another project that I've been working on. And then um, with actually a lab manager at um, the business school, she and I have been working on a project, I think that's very related to a lot of the things we've been talking about, but maybe haven't specifically mentioned yet, which is about social class and mentorship experiences. Um, so what we find is that the first generation individuals are much less likely to have had a mentor Um when, you know, helping them sort of navigate the early stages of their career. But if they have been a protege in the past, that we actually don't sort of see any gaps in their desire to mentor going forward, or if their organization actually offers like a formal mentorship program. So a lot of um, prior research in like sociology and social class kind of finds that there's sort of differential access to these high status networks. So, uh, you know, a lot of middle and upper class individuals can get, you know, informal networking and mentoring relationships up and running pretty easily just because they have these people in their network already. But what we're seeing is that um, you can really close the gap there if you actually offer um, a formal mentorship program at the company because, you know, perhaps offers training, it pairs a mentor with a mentee, um, and it doesn't really require having sort of natural um, access to these kind of elite networks. Um, It can kind of give you plugged into those networks. Um, and as, as we've been talking about, we think it's, this is a really important question because we haven't tested it yet, but based on all this research that I was talking about with um, social class and leadership, we expect that uh, working class individuals, first generation individuals would probably be significantly better mentors um, than the average middle or upper class individual. And so we really want to, to get more people into mentoring positions who are coming from this background. Um, and so we're just trying to devise interventions that we can implement in, with companies, hopefully, um, to kind of up the mentorship intentions of their first generation employees. So that's super fascinating. And I think it the point about the elite institutions is really interesting because I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's another example of where if you're coming at it from the deficit mindset, you're you're thinking about yeah these elite institutions will um will improve these first generation students in particular ways mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and then it seems like in some ways that ends up unfortunately being like a non-starter because it's maybe not the right way to look at it in the first place um yeah. Yeah. and sort of against the institution looking at itself and sort of asking yeah what are what are we doing that's suboptimal or what, what is the resource that we are missing with these different populations? Uh, and how do we better tap into and sort of unlock the resources that these different populations are bringing to us? It, it just feels like, yeah, another example of how that, that paradigm shift is pretty important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's 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 why I think it's so fascinating to sort of study social psychology, kind of just as an aside in a business school context, because I think a lot of work really focuses on like the individual and sort of building up certain skills or traits. Or, you know, if you're kind of like more on the economists or sociologist side, you're sort of thinking like, how do we change like structures? But it turns out it's also really important how 
people, sort of this in-between stage of basically how people construe the environments that they're in, which is sort of like that classic person-by-situation interaction. And that's really where a lot of my research is situated. So I think, yeah, we just think, oh yeah, put them into an elite preparatory program and the gap will be closed. And it's like, well, no, it's important like what they're getting out of that and like how that program is framed. And yeah, I I think there's like a lot more nuance. I, I obviously think that like structural changes are super important, um, but I think we need to think about from a psychological standpoint, kind of how they're structured and what, and what messages they're sending um, to make sure that they're like equally accessible to people from different backgrounds. Andrea, if people wanted to like read more, learn more, hear about more of your research, where could they do that? Yes, yes. Thank you for asking. So um, if you're interested specifically in the social class and teamwork um, research that I've been discussing, I recently wrote a a Harvard Business Review article about some of that work um, that came out in a a July issue. So you can definitely find that um, if you sort of Google like HBR social class teamwork. Um, You can also visit my personal website, which is just my name, andreadittman.com. And I have all my research that is ongoing and published linked, as well as links to other popular press articles that I have done, um, other speaking engagements that I've had. Um, and of course, you know, I'm I'm here at Emory, so people should feel free to reach out to me via email or swing by my office at Goizueta if they want to chat more or learn more. I'm always happy to discuss, you know, research or anything really related to diversity and inequality in organizations. Awesome. Um, I- I'm curious before we do some like wrapping up style talking is there anything andrea that like that you really want to say want to circle back on something you wish i'd asked you more about yeah um the only thing i I don't know if it even fits into this episode at all because we've been just mostly talking about first gen issues um i mean i i do study diversity and inequality in organizations broadly and so like another stream of research that's within that broad space, but we haven't talked about it all is, um, designing, you know, relationships in interactions between the community and their police that actually can reduce threat and build trust. That's definitely in a related vein, but it's not at all about social class, um, directly. So I would just mention that I'm also working on that. I mean, I think it's, it's related too, because it's really thinking about like interactional dynamics. So I think that's like a really big interest for me as it pertains to social class and also as it pertains to like other inequality relevant issues. It's just kind of how the interactions people are having um, can either attenuate or perpetuate inequalities. So that's just a little shout out about the police research that I'm doing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when you told me about that research last time we spoke, it is super fascinating. Anything else? Hmm. I, I feel like we've covered it all. I think that was really all that I wanted to, to, to talk about. And I'm glad I got to like mention some of the other, um, other people working on related stuff in this field. Cause I think there is like a, a really nice body of work that's sort of start. It's, it's pretty young body of work, but I think it's all sort of starting to come out and it's, it's nice that it's, it's looking at it from a lot of different perspectives, but it's really sort of telling the same story about this relational other oriented, um, qualities and kind of the, the various ways that that manifests. So I think we, I think we did a good job covering that. Our conversation with Andrea brought a number of key insights to the surface. First, the vital importance of shifting from a deficit-based mindset when thinking about employees to an asset-based mindset. In other words, changing your focus from how do we fix what is wrong with certain employees to 
how do we best unlock the strengths and experiences that our employees are bringing to the table? Next, Andrea encourages us to think very carefully about team structure and the ways in which we give tasks to various teams, matching the kind of work we need to get done with the kind of team structure that we put in place. And finally, shifting from a question about how do we change employees to questions about how do we change our organization to include and empower all of our employees? These changes can start with recruiting and they go all the way through an employee's life cycle at your organization. Andrea, it has been really fantastic to have you on this episode of Emory Innovators. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to chat with you and you actually asked a lot of thought-provoking questions and I feel like I've got some new ideas for, for new projects to add to the list um, to pursue. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.